Well, good morning, everybody. It's break a leg, did you say? <laughs> Thank you. Isn't that sweet? <laughs> well, Merry Christmas. It's, uh, it is that time of year. Um, a pastor I had last week was talking about this idea that Christmas is, is a love story. It's a love story between God and us, his people. And uh, a matter of fact, this love that's extended to us is love that we don't really uh, comprehend very well. It's beyond the words that we use. We use all kind of different words for love and, and, uh, or, or mean different things by that word. And yet this love that's extended to us truly is beyond our comprehension. It's a little bit, as he said, it was a little bit like looking into the sun, is, which is a little bit like what these spotlights are, if you're up here. It's really a blessing. <laughs> Um, I know exactly what sunspots feel like in your eyes. And so, uh, but, but the idea is that you can only really comprehend a little bit at a time. You can only really look into it just for a few moments. And because it is just so big, it's so big and wide and deep and, and more than we could ever really imagine. So really every time we gather here, we're trying to just look into the sun a little bit more. We're look, we're trying to, to get it a little bit more, trying to get it from our head to our hearts and let this deepen. Uh, as he was talking last week, one of my favorite quotes um, by Robert McGee came to mind and says, we have great worth apart from our performance because Christ was born and gave his life for us. He imparted great value to us. We are deeply loved, fully pleasing, totally forgiven, accepted and complete in Christ. I read that about 30 years ago for the first time, and I thought, huh? Really? Sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't get my, my brain around it. It was, like, it was like looking into the sun. It's like, gosh, it's, and this, this, this intensity is overwhelming, but I just can't quite believe it. And so for the last 30 years, little by little, as I've kind of looked into the sun and tried to take this in a little bit more and ask God, what do you mean? What does this really mean? What does this love really mean for us? And what does it mean about me? And it's just kind of soaked in a little bit more. And I've come to the realization that that this idea, particularly this idea of fully pleasing, that one, I think that one tripped me up more than any of them because um, I know me. And I know my behavior is rarely fully pleasing. As a matter of fact, hardly ever. But as I've thought about this and soaked this in over the years, I've realized this has absolutely nothing to do with me. It's all about him. It's all about what he has provided. It's all about this love that's been extended to us when we didn't deserve it, when we can't earn it, but it is absolute, it's complete, it doesn't change, it's full. And as I've gotten a little bit more of that to soak in over the years, I found that when we get this, something changes in us. Something begins to transform inside of us. And we begin to do kind of weird things. We begin to do strange stuff, like think about others before we think about ourselves. I don't know about you, but that doesn't happen naturally for me. Um, but as we take in what he's done for us, then it, 
it makes a little bit more sense. It becomes a little bit more natural to be more like him. Do you have a favorite Christmas movie? I have several of them. One of them is White Christmas. And so I wanted to come today in like a long red fur gown and have the snow behind us and sing I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas. But somehow it got vetoed on the pastoral staff. I, I don't know what that's about. Um, but, but another one that I really have grown to love over the years is It's a Wonderful Life. Now, when I first used to see it when I was young, it was like, what a bummer. The guy didn't get to do anything that he wanted to do with his life. But I've since come to see that that's an ordinary life, that when it was lived rightly, it became extraordinary, that it impacted so many people around him, and it really changed the world. And I think that's what Christmas is about. God came to us so that we could be transformed, so that we could make a difference in our ordinary lives in the world around us. And that's what we want to talk about today. Rather than talk about the, the typical Christmas message um, with the nativity, we'll, we'll touch on that briefly. But we really want to talk about what does this mean that he came to earth? How does that impact us? How does that change how we live our lives? This Emmanuel, God with us. Why are we different because of that? When I think about the nativity scene, I, I always imagine this time where Mary and Joseph are sitting there by themselves. The shepherds haven't come yet, and they're sitting there by themselves, and they've had this baby wrapped and, and lying in the manger, and it's cold and crisp outside, and the, the stars are sparkling up above. It's a clear night, and they're just sitting there in utter peace and silence going, look at this miracle. And they feel this incredible peace that everything is good and right and that God is in control. And yet, when we look at the life of Jesus, it didn't stay peaceful like that, did it? He faced evil. He faced brutality. He was betrayed. He was beaten. He faced the worst evil of mankind. And he lived a life like we do. He faced the things that we face every day when he was on this earth. But I believe that he came to show us a different way to, to live life than what we would normally live on our own. That we don't have to slip into the normal type of behavior, but that he came to transform us and to make us new so that we can live extraordinary lives. And so today we want to talk about hope. The hope of Jesus. The hope that Christmas brings to us. And we want to remind you that we follow an extraordinary God who gives us extraordinary power and the resources to live extraordinary lives. Um, when I was 10 years old, I had an event, really a, one of those life-changing events that impacted me significantly. I was uh, with a cousin and my, my dad and my uncle at a professional baseball game. And we... Uh, my cousin and I were going to run to the concession stand, and so we ran off on our own, and, and uh, my cousin had to run into the restroom first, so I was just kind of hanging around. And all of a sudden, I had two guys, I think we think they're about 20 years old, grab me by the shoulders, um, drug me into a little lobby area, kind of underneath the stairwell, uh, away from everybody, um, started saying all kind of stuff to me, words that I hadn't yet learned in my life, um, uh, physically, verbally accosting me, throwing, you know, kind of banging me up against the wall. And uh, 
Needless to say, I was just in shock. I, was, I didn't, didn't know what was going on. Now, this part will date me a little bit because they were demanding quarters. <laughs> okay. It's like when a quarter actually did something. I mean, the quarters were really quite valuable at that time, okay? Um, and they said, you owe us quarters. You owe us quarters. Give us every quarter you have. Give us quarters. And they just, I just was, I was really, I think I was in shock. I was just kind of overwhelmed. I didn't totally know what they were saying to me. There, I remember there were some boxes in there, and they kept pushing me back against those. They, they, they grabbed the, the, uh, in my pockets and pulled my pockets out and found out that it was my cousin that had the money for the concession and not me. And eventually, I don't remember how long this went on, but eventually they kind of pushed me up against the wall, said a bunch of stuff to me, and walked away. Now, I was like, once I kind of gathered myself, obviously I was freaked out. I went and grabbed my cousin, and we ran back to the seats, and there were thousands of people there. There's no way we could have found out who these people were. My dad could tell something had happened. I kind of explained the thing, and so he kind of pulled me in, sat me between um, himself and my uncle, and, and I felt safe at that moment. But I found myself thinking, I, how am I going to get back at these guys? I've got to get these guys. I have to make sure that this never happens again in my life. And so what, as a 10-year-old, I was stepping in to the principles of the kingdom of this world. Because the kingdom of this world, if you feel disempowered, then you just learn how to take, take control. You learn how to exert power and you, you learn how to be on your toes and think about, okay, how can I take charge of a situation? If you feel weak, you go to the gym. If you, if you feel um, financially um, at risk, you start accumulating wealth and you hold on to it. And you hoard it because I've got to make sure that I, that I am strong. If people do things against you, then you have to assert control and take charge. Basically, the, the theme of the kingdom of this world is if you get hit, you just hit back harder. And as a 10-year-old, I was stepping into that world. That's, that be, began to have some influence in my life. So today, we're going to talk about... How is our world turned upside down by what Jesus has done, by Jesus coming into the world? We could talk for days about it, but we want to take a, a few minutes to look in Matthew at the Sermon on the Mount, which was Jesus' first sermon. Matthew 5.38 says, You have heard it was said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Historians have helped us understand what this meant at this time that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. At this time, there was the law of reciprocity. People operated under this system of, if someone does you harm, then they should have harm equally back to them. Really was good for our government or for the government of the time, because if we didn't respond back equally, then our natural tendency would be, I'm going to hit you back harder than you hit me. Some of you guys are going to experience this with your kids when you are in the car going to grandma's house. 
that he hit me, he hit harder. That's the natural, not your kids, right? That's the natural human tendency. So the normal course of our human reaction is, is you kill my dog, I'm going to kill your dog and your chickens and your pigs and your cow because um, I'm going to make sure that you know not to mess with me. That's the natural human reaction that we have. So those that were operating under this law of reciprocity thought they were doing good, that, um, that they were keeping even a higher standing, standard than our natural human tendency. Jesus came to show us a higher way. Um, he showed us a kingdom that is totally different than even the law of reciprocity. It's on a, on a, it's on a higher level than that. Um, I say this is likened to what I call a spiritual jujitsu. If you know anything about jujitsu, it's a martial arts that teaches people that if somebody comes with you at force, instead of going back at them with equal force or more powerful force, that you, that you take the force that they come, with you, come at you with and you wor- use it against them. Um, and so just by thinking, just by the way that you think and the way that you respond without getting back at them or coming back with them at force, that you actually can unarm someone. And so, so what, let's look at these, um, the, the, some fragments of this teaching that Janice just read. And uh, because Jesus is talking about a higher level of security, a, a security in the kingdom that puts us in a different place to be able to be a different kind of people. So the first one is if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I've always thought that a curious verse. I've thought, okay, somebody, somebody smacks you, you're supposed to just turn the other cheek. Well, how many times are you supposed to do this? I mean, you just keep doing it, you know, right, left, right, left, until you like your teeth get knocked out. I mean, how, is it, have anybody else wondered what this, what this actually means? Well, in, in this time, Jesus' time, um, you would oftentimes see a master slapping um, their servant. It was kind of a common thing. They could pretty much treat them any way they wanted to. Uh, there was no law against that. Now, if you slap somebody of equal level, then they could sue you. Um, that was not something that was appropriate for you to do. But masters oftentimes slap their, their servants. Now, uh, when you hit in that day, you never hit with the left hand. You always hit with the right hand. So if I'm going to hit somebody on the right cheek, I basically have to backhand them. And what oftentimes would happen is a master would backhand their servant, uh, and their servant would cower. And as they cower, they would just um, add, uh, allow for further abuse. And so Jesus is calling us to a higher standard here. He says, if somebody hits you that way, um, don't cower. Don't cower and allow abuse to continue. But also don't come back with force. Don't go to, don't go to court and, and sue them. What if you just simply offered the other cheek? People didn't do that. That would have been so odd. That is almost unthinkable uh, at that time. So Jesus is offering really a stunning kind of response. What it would allow for is that abuser to in essence be shocked by this. It's, what are you doing? They were expecting either you to cower, to come back at them, but all of a sudden you just step back into it and you offer the other cheek. What What it allows for is there to be the possibility of conviction for the abuser to recognize, okay, what, 
what, is, what are they doing? What, what is this about? Now, this was not to be turned into a law. Uh, that was the challenge that Jesus had with the Pharisees. And uh, they were always turning every kingdom principle into a law. So he is not suggesting that we, again, allow ourselves to be abused. The main theme here is that Jesus has said, your, this, your security is in me. It does not matter how people treat you. It doesn't matter. What they think about you, how they react to you, don't, don't give that um, consideration. Only consider what I have given you and what I think of you and the value that I have put in you. Because if you can gain a sense of security in me, then people can talk about you. They can talk bad about your reputation. They can lie about you. They can dishonor you. And you don't have to fight back. Um, it's a different way of reacting than what our natural tendency is. Or even the tendency of the time, which they thought this law of reciprocity, but they thought was a higher standard. Let's look at the next one. If somebody wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In Jesus' day, there were, the poor were at the mercy of the rich. And so if you were a poor person, many of the poor, all they had was the clothes that they were wearing. They owned no property. They didn't know anything beyond that. And so if, the, if a poor person got in a, in a bind and couldn't feed their family, let's say, then they would go to a rich person and try to borrow money. And what they would do is, as, as collateral, they would author, offer their clothes for collateral so that they would get a loan. Now, the tunic represents basically our clothes that cover the skin. It's, a, it's those, the main clothes that we wear. The cloak was an outer garment, like a coat. It was something for warmth. It was also something they would roll up at night and use as a pillow. And if the person that had loaned the money wanted the money back, and the person couldn't yet pay it back, then they could sue them and keep their clothes. And so what Jesus is saying is if you get sued and somebody wants your clothes, offer your cloak as well. Weird. I mean, just upside down kind of thinking. Why? Why would Jesus be suggesting that? Because the guiding principle in the kingdom of God is others, is, is love. It's considering others. Jesus is saying, you are secure in me. Your security is not in what you own. Your security is not in your ability to, to have wealth or resources. I own all the tunics and all the cloaks on the planet. They're on all the people and all the ones that are being made at all the looms. So I own all of that. So you don't have to worry about lack. You can give, um, even in situations like this, you can freely give because your security is in me. I'm going to take care of you. Upside down thinking. The next one. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Now, you know the story. If you read about the culture at that time, the Romans were a very powerful influence. And the law said that a Roman soldier could ask any Jew at any time to carry their stuff, carry their luggage for them. And if you were, if you were a Jew and you were asked to carry luggage, you had to at least carry it a mile. Now, no Jew ever wanted to carry Roman stuff more than a foot. Um, but it said you had to carry it a mile. Now, the reason there was a limit to that mile is the Roman government knew that this could easily be abused. And the Romans would just basically be having all the Jews carry their stuff all the time and just have kind of their person's, personal servants. So they said the limit was a mile. 
And so what Jesus is saying is if you are demanded. Now, this is not like helping your friend move, okay? <laughs> this is you're made to do it. You're forced to do it. It says if you are forced to do something, offer the second mile. Stunning. Weird response. But think about what the person might think. Think about what that Roman soldier might think. It's like, you're going to go two miles? It would have... It would, have stunned, it would have been shocking to their system. Again, the highest value in the kingdom of God is loving, is giving. It's, it's even giving to those people that you can't stand. It's considering the good for those people that might even be oppressive to you. The last one here. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Again, in the culture, the dominant teaching on giving was you only give to your family. You only give to your kinsmen, people that are in your, in your culture. And if you give to them, only give just enough that they, you know, just meet the basic need. So that was the, the dominant teaching here. Jesus, again, is saying, give to anyone. Anybody that asks you, anybody in need. Well, but, but God, what if they're not? a real responsible person? What if they're kind of lazy? What if they're not going to use the funds totally the way I think they should use them? He says, don't worry about it. That's, that's, that's not the point here. The point is that you give. Um, your responsibility is to offer yourself and your resources and to give. Now, once again, this is not a law. He's not suggesting that you know, if you see a beggar and you give them money and immediately you know they're going to run to the liquor store next door, that would not be wise, right? That's why it's wiser to, if you see a beggar, to say, can I buy you a meal? And you go buy him a meal. That's why we have almost every month an outreach here that we have looked at closely, that we know where the funds are going to go. We know that they're going to be used properly and they're not just going to get lost in administrative costs. They're actually going to meet a need because we are encouraging all of us to get into this rhythm of, of giving. And it doesn't matter whether if we give to a missionary that we have to go through and make sure that they, did they use that every dime of that to the, you know, every perfect. That's not the point, Jesus said. Our responsibility is to give. So each of these situations, again, it's because our security is in him. We don't have to fear lack. So each of these is asking us, encouraging us to do something that's unnatural, that's unthinkable, that doesn't even seem smart sometimes. Now, the world puts natural boundaries around stuff to make sure that there's laws, and if this happens, then this happens, and we have to do that in society. But the kingdom of God is on a higher principle. This, this kingdom jujitsu, can't even hardly say it. Mm-hmm. Um, can you demonstrate it? No. Um, the uh, actually startles people. And what if, what if we started acting this way? And what if people's response began to be, who does that? Did you see what those people did? They're not getting anything out of this. Do you, they, they were caring for people that they don't even agree with and that are, that are maybe even in a subculture that most believers are judging, and, but yet they're loving them. And who does that? Who acts that way? What if that became 
a dominant theme that began to happen in our life, in our little world here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. What might that look like? Let's go on to verse 43. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Again, the people of this time would have understood the law of the land, the law that came out of Leviticus, Leviticus 19, 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Loving your neighbor was a basic expectation. You were expected to do good to those around you. That was part of the law, just as it was the law to give to your kin. So it was right to do good to those that you were in relationship with. But Jesus is giving us an upside-down message here, something that was countercultural at the time and is countercultural for us too. Because at that time, it was acceptable to hate your enemies. Of course I love my neighbors, but yeah, I'm going to hate those that come against me. That was part of life. But what he's saying here is, Love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Do good to your enemies. And we can't do that on our own. Because there's that part in us that says, how can I love my enemies? I don't feel love for them. Did you see what they did to me? But what Jesus is talking about doesn't have anything to do with feeling. It doesn't mean you feel love for somebody. It doesn't even mean that you like them. What he's talking about is agape love, where I will the good for another person. So even if you have done me wrong, I act in love towards you. I am a loving person to everyone around me, whether they're close to me or not. I make a choice to do things in a loving way, regardless of how you react to me. That's upside down. And that's something we can only do with the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do that on our own. Jesus came to give us the ability, those extraordinary resources, so that we could live a different life where we are loving those around us. And he came as an example to us of living that kind of a life here on earth. Let's go on to Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Most of us have been watching the news lately. We know what's going on in this little, little town in Connecticut. Um, just this senseless massacre that just makes no sense. It just assaults our sensibilities on all levels. Uh, any parent can only just imagine what that might feel like. You see these parents on the news and see funeral after funeral and what they must go through. And there's lots of comments that have stood out to me, one, one in particular uh, from a dad. Um, and they actually remind us of some friends of ours, uh, just this wonderful couple uh, with three little blonde-haired girls, 
And one of their, their oldest little girl was killed in this senseless murder. And, um, and I was just listening to him being interviewed. And he was saying, you know, we really are praying for our town. We're praying for our families here. We're praying for each of the other families, person by person, name by name. And I thought, that's good. You know, that sounds right. And then he said, and we're also praying for the shooter's family. He said, I'm sure they're grieving right now. I'm sure this is hard for them. And I thought, what? Who, who does that? How, how would he, how does he do that? But there was something in that that showed me a different kind of kingdom. He was operating off of a different kingdom. God did not wait for us to become lovable before he loved us. He did not wait for us as a culture to get all of our life together just right. And then I'm going to give them this gift of Christmas, this gift of Jesus. It was while we were yet sinners, while we were still in a mess, he did this for us. So when we begin to love our enemies, when we begin to act that way, we are being like him. We are doing the kind of thing he does. And something begins to change inside of us. Now to make this transition, to cross this line from this self-centeredness and self-protection to this idea of generosity and giving and love to people that might even be enemies, as Janice alluded to, we cannot do this on our own. I don't know about you, but I know I'm not that way naturally. We can only do that by the indwelling of Christ in our life, by this, this new life, new kingdom being a part of. That's what Christmas is so significant, is Christ's coming to be with us and in us. Uh, Miroslav Volf, say that many times in a row, um, a really fascinating theologian, talks about this wonder of Christmas. It says, if we are indwelled by Christ, who became poor, that we can become rich, we will be rich. No matter how little we have, we will be more than enough people. And yet without being more than enough people, our wanting will always outpace our having and we'll end up perpetually exhausted and forever dissatisfied. We are more than enough people, not because of what we have, not because we're extremely talented, not because we've been wise and saved and done all of these things. We are more than enough because Jesus came to earth for us. And the living God dwells within us. That makes us more than enough. That gives us immense value, regardless of any of the circumstances around us. And it also makes us safe. We are safe in God because we know who provides. We know who takes care of us. We know the God of the universe. And that makes us safe so that we can give, that we can love, that we can give our lives away because we know that he will always take care of us. Wolf goes on to say, a rich self looks towards the future with trust. It gives rather than holding things back in fear of coming out too short because it believes God's promise that God will take care of it. Finite and endangered, a rich self still gives because its life is hidden in Christ, in the infinite, unassailable, and utterly generous God, the Lord of the present, 
the past and the future. We serve the Lord of the present, the past, and the future. And we are safe in him because he dwells within us. Now, most of you are probably not going to get slapped this week by your boss. Um, at least I'm hoping not. We have laws against that. Um, and hopefully you're not in the middle of being sued right now. I, probably a few of you that are dealing with stuff like that. But hopefully most of you aren't. Um, but I think probably all of us can connect with one of these situations where we felt offended or hurt or misunderstood or treated badly. Um, I know a few years ago, uh, I went through probably one of the most difficult things I've ever gone through in my life, let alone in my ministry. Um, I went, I had some people that were close to me that I'd, I felt uh, was kind of doing life with, that I felt like we, we just kind of had this disconnect, that they began to really misunderstand some things that, that where I feel like God was saying on where we were to go in the direction of my life. And, and uh, I felt like I was Pre, I was judged. I felt like it was misunderstood. I felt betrayed. I got a list of these emotions, okay? I mean, I got, and, I've, and for a while, I went over these. Have you ever done that? I meditated on these day and night. Um, and, and I just, I got, I got, I was hurt. I, I got angry. I was frustrated. I felt this disconnect that, that began to happen. Um, and I was certainly not praying for them. I was thinking about them, but I, you, you, wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't call it a prayer. Um, but uh, I felt the Lord, I felt the Holy Spirit finally penetrate and say, Brent, give it up. Um, don't wait on the phone call. Because see, I was hoping for phone calls. I was hoping for, you know what? I just, I realized that we just have misunderstood some things and we kind of prejudged some things and, and uh, I was so wanting the phone call. Never got the phone call. Uh, felt like the Lord said, just give it up. He said, you don't have to defend yourself. You're secure in me. You don't have to defend your reputation. You don't have to go out there and make sure everybody that they're talking to has the right story. Give it up. He said, just settle back in me. He said, I'll handle all of that. You keep doing um, what you're supposed to in me, what I've called you to do. Keep listening to me, responding to me, and let go of that. And I'll tell you, something began to change in me. Now, I wish I could tell you I had this Damascus thing happen, road thing, you know, and it was this big clouds and thunder and lightning and bam, 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 you know, and I woke up and had this, nah, I wouldn't say that. Uh, it's something that happened over days and weeks and months, probably. But, but I, all of a sudden, I began to feel lighter. I, I, I began to, it, it felt more natural as I began to pray for them, person by person, um, pray for their children. All of a sudden, I really felt in my heart that I could really wish their good, that I really, truly wanted good. Because I wasn't wanting good for them before. Uh, I was wanting, well, I won't say... Um, <laughs> But I really, truly felt um, a, a peace. Something changes in us when we allow the love that he has for us, that place of kingdom security, that place of security in him. Something happens. Now, you may not relate to someone literally being an enemy in your life right now. 
Um, you know, in, in America, we're pretty insulated here. Um, but maybe it's um, a competitor. What if the Lord might be saying to you, pray for a competitor? Now, that might be somebody in business, uh, somebody that, that um, you feel like might take away from you. A competitor is anyone you are measured against. Anyone whose success in some way diminishes your success. Who might that be? A business person? It might be in sports. It might be, y'all know, you parents know, it might be the parents of the other kid that's competing with your kid, you know, you know that kind of feeling. Um, whoever that might be, what if our, 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 our ultimate plan, our ultimate being renewed by the kingdom of God would be if we pray for them? Uh, I've had a few people say to me, Brent, did you know that Life Church is building another campus right over here, real close to you? How do you think that might affect your church? You think you, you, know, you might have people go over there and, and uh, might, might affect you? You know, and I really felt, maybe it was because of this other situation that I went through, I don't know, but I really felt pretty quickly, the Lord said, no, we need, to, we need to pray for them. We need to pray for that everything to go perfectly with their building project. We need to pray for all the people that are supposed to go there. You know, there's enough people in the world that, that all of our churches could be full, okay? Um, and we need to pray for those that are going to connect with God because of the way they do church. That when Craig Rochelle comes on, that they just connect and it does something and it's transformative. We need to pray for this whole region that everybody that could be touched by that goes to that church. That we should pray that every one of their services is overflowing. And they will, I'm praying that they'll have more services than all the rest of the campus. You know, they have like 27 services a week. It's not quite that many, but it's, you know, we need to pray that that's like one of the most successful in the whole region of, of, of that kind of church. And I'm just, I'm asking you, will you join with me in the new year and do that? Every time you think of them, every time you drive, it's over there by Tulsa Hills. Every time you even think about that, pray for them. Pray for everybody that's supposed to connect with God through that ministry. We believe we're in this town because there's people that are going to connect here. And we, f- we feel strongly that we, there's a certain way of, of, of how we connect with God, that there's a certain group of people that are going to be here. We feel secure in that. Kingdom security is be secure. Be secure in him. You don't have to then try to get it yourself. You don't have to... Um, defend yourself um, against others. Something about this love. Just keep, keep looking into the sun and just let it, let it renew you. Let it help this, I call it a head-heart transfer. Help it settle in your heart more and more. Um, I saw a bumper sticker the other day. that Now, there's no condemnation in Christ, okay? But it, it convicted me. Um, the bumper sticker said, I love your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians don't look much like your Christ. It just spoke to me. And I'm just, you know, we're here this morning just saying, let's let's let this love transform us. Let's let Christmas change us us this year. Amen.